when employers commit wage violations against their low-wage employees, recovery of those funds through a lawsuit or the administrative process is difficult and time-consuming. No matter the outcome of the litigation, the result is a transfer of wealth from the victims of wage theft to the perpetrators. But what if there was a way to ensure employees were paid up front for their lost wages? Welcome to the California Law Review Podcast. Our goal is to provide an accessible and thought-provoking overview of the scholarship we publish. Today, we will be discussing Wage Recovery Funds, a piece by Elizabeth Ford, a visiting professor at Seattle University School of Law. Professor Ford's article was published in Issue 5 of Volume 110 in October of 2022. Professor Ford, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about your article today. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. I just think it's wonderful that you at California Law Review are creating this kind of platform to both elevate um, work like this, but also to spread the information more broadly. So I'm thrilled to be here and also excited to talk about wage recovery funds. Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly what we're, what we're trying to do. So to begin with, can you summarize your article's main argument for us? I'd be happy to. Um, So I'm going to say this in the most provocative way I can think of, and that is this. Um, Our enforcement system for minimum wage and other minimum pay standards is resulting in the divestiture of wealth from low-wage workers. And that um, is because the agencies charged with recovering unpaid wages are, as a practical matter, only recovering wages owed and not interest due on those wages, the cost of money over time. This means that effectively, low-wage workers are forced to give a no-interest loan to their employer. And it's especially troubling because these workers already bore the cost of not having access to their money, which might mean the cost of credit or more commonly, the cost of having foregone basic needs, you know, losing housing, uh, foregoing important medical treatment, Um, So the question is, how does this happen and what can we do about it? And what was it that motivated you to write this article? Yeah, so um, I teach a workers' rights clinic at Seattle University and the the students in that clinic uh, and I represent low-wage workers in a variety of workplace situations and and we see a a sort of avalanche of wage theft um, claims. Workers who were paid less than minimum wage, were paid nothing, were um, forced to work um, off the clock, that is extra hours for no pay. Um, and the, um, as we began um, sort of assessing and litigating these cases, um, we noticed a pattern at, our, at the agency in Washington state, which is that the agency was, um, as a matter of policy, um, failing to collect interest. They would resolve these cases for wages only. And so um, we've thought about the structural implications of that uh, and the, um, the fact that the, the, um, the burden of wage theft falls disproportionately on BIPOC workers. And so what we were seeing case after case after case was this um, drip, drip, drip of wealth being, um, as a part of the enforcement process, removed from workers. The second thing that motivated me to write this article, honestly, was my brother. And I was um, 
having um, watched these, you know, case after case, I was bemoaning this to him. And he's a bankruptcy lawyer. And he suggested in a kind of offhand way, um, well, why don't the agencies take assignment? And that is, gain the rights to litigate and recover the, um, the amounts owed, the, owed to the worker of the claims. Litigate them and, and then recover much more than the worker could. And my reaction was, huh, well, that's interesting. And I started looking at it more deeply and realizing that many of the pieces necessary to actually implement that already existed. What is wage theft? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, so the term wage theft was really coined by um, uh, Kim Bobo, who wrote a book called Wage Theft in America in 2008. Uh, and it is intended to capture the idea that when an employer pays less than they are required to pay, less than minimum wage, less than the required overtime, they are, they are um, taking the value of that, um, that worker's labor without paying for it. So they're taking something valuable and not paying the worker what they're owed, and that's that. Yeah, I think it's such an important term and, and an evocative term. Yeah. And for, for folks who have suffered wage theft, could you describe why the agency enforcement process is essentially the only option available to them. Yeah. So um, in most states, um, the um, and federally, a, a, um, an employee who's not paid, for example, minimum wage, has the ability to bring um, an in-court piece of litigation, right, to um, sue their employer for unpaid wages. And the employee has an option to bring a wage claim through a state agency. Now, theoretically, those are um, equally available. The reality is that they are not. Uh, for low-wage workers whose claims tend to be small, uh, that they um, cannot afford, certainly, to hire a lawyer on an hourly basis. And um, in terms of a lawyer's willingness to take these um, low damage cases on contingency, um, they generally are not willing to do that. Uh, and that is because the recovery, um, the, uh, the attorney's fees necessary to gain the recovery will quickly outstrip the amount of the recovery, making it difficult for lawyers to recover their, um, their attorney's fees. And so it is, uh, highly unusual outside the world of class actions that an individual low-wage worker will be able to bring a, um, a, a lawsuit against their employer. So that means the administrative agencies are incredibly important for, uh, for low-wage workers. They are pretty much it. Um, theoretically, you could bring a claim in small claims court, but I will tell you, small claims judges do not understand, in most places outside of Boston, uh, do not understand wage theft. Uh, and so the administrative enforcement process is it. And could you describe that administrative enforcement process for us? Sure. So um, in mo it's, it will vary by states, right? There are some states that, that um, you know, 
don't set minimum standards, therefore, outside of the federal standard and therefore have no administrative enforcement agencies. Um, but there are some things we can say in general about uh, the states that do have uh, administrative enforcement agencies. One is that those agencies are generally charged with um, uh, receiving complaints from individual workers or groups of workers and investigating those, um, those complaints. Um, and so meaning gathering information from the employer, gathering information from the employee, and then some agencies um, have the authority to issue a, um, a, an order, a citation, uh, can take a variety of forms, but a requirement that the employer pay. Uh, and those requirements generally uh, are appealable through the state's Administrative Procedures Act. Um, some states, uh, complete their investigations and then have the authority to litigate. Um, so I would say most states fall in the first category of the sort of strict uh, administrative um, orders uh, requiring the employer to pay. So it is a, they have a fair amount of power um, and they can, in most cases, issue subpoenas. Um, they, they can, in most cases, recover penalties and they can, in nearly all cases, uh, recover interest. Who is on you and what does her story tell us about the shortcomings of the administrative enforcement process? Yeah, on you is a, um, is a composite, a story that I tell in the article to demonstrate how this, um, how this the, uh, plays out in real life. Um, uh, on you is based on a client that I had early on in the clinic uh, and um, She's an amazing woman, uh, and she. Um, so Anu's story is is loosely based on uh, on hers, but An um, um, uh, came to the United States from Korea and um, got a cosmetology license. Went went to school, got a cosmetology license, and started um, doing. Uh, wanted to start be doing beautician work. Looked around and got hired by a, um, a salon and that salon um, told her that they would pay her a set amount every week. Um, so let's say, you know, $300, well below minimum wage if uh, for a 40 hour work week. Um, and on worked uh, for about six months for this employer, making this set amount of money, working 10 hour days, um, uh, doing work that that was not satisfactory to her um, and um, and falling behind on her bills because this um, work was not enough to make meet her basic uh, expenses. So she fell behind on her rent. She fell behind. She needed to use various kinds of high interest credit because that was the credit available to her. Uh, she she had to make decisions to forego um, certain kinds of medical treatment, which had consequences later. Um, and so all because she was making far less than was, than is, um, you know, uh, mandated in Washington and far less than she needed. And she eventually left her job. And when she did, the employer um, failed to pay her her last paycheck. And that's what brought her into the clinic. Um, 
So she came in wanting to recover that last two weeks of pay. Uh, and uh, we took a look at it and said, no, you're owed a lot more than that. Um, and, um, and we set about recovering it by filing an administrative charge. And um, so uh, now um, Ms. Yu is probably, you know, six months or a year beyond when she should have gotten her money. And um, at that point, the department, the enforcement agency said to, um, to us and to the employer, if you pay the unpaid wages, um, we will uh, resolve this case. And um, we turned to our client and said, you know, we can fight this. We, we think it's important for you to recover wages. And our client said quite reasonably, I can't wait. Uh, it will be far more valuable to me to have a little bit, you know, almost all now than it would be to wait for the interest. And we couldn't disagree with that. Um, and so what An Yu ended up doing in order to get um, her wages was to give her employer a interest-free loan for a year and a half. The employer had Ms. Yu's money, during that period of time was able to make, uh, you know, earn, earn money with that money. Um, and meanwhile, Ms. Yu was going deeper and deeper into debt. Yeah, I just wanted to read a, a quote that, that you wrote in the article that I think really sums up that, that example that's so powerful. Um, and you write, in the end, Ms. Yu gave Sassy Hair Salon an interest-free loan even while she was paying interest on loans she was forced to take because of Sassy's failure to pay minimum wage. So thank you so much for that, for that story. Yeah. I think it illustrates the, the problem well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so frustrating. How do these same problems arise uh, when it comes to the Department of Labor's approach to wage recovery? The Department of Labor um, has, a, has a really interesting history around this issue. So the first thing that's just important to know under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the law that requires uh, minimum wage across the country, it sets that minimum wage at $7.25. So, um, uh, and that, um, that uh, minimum wage and overtime law is enforced by the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division. The, um, the Fair Labor Standards Act does not um, allow for interest per se. In other words, it doesn't calculate interest based on a percentage. Instead, the Fair Labor Standards Act requires the payment of liquidated damages, that is uh, double uh, um, the amount of the unpaid wages as a substitute for interest. Um, and so the, when the wage and hour division investigates uh, and remedies um, let's say minimum wage violations under the federal law, um, it has the authority to collect liquidated damages as a substitute for interest. In the Obama administration, the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division, um, as a matter of course, um, was collecting those liquidated damages. Uh, and that was an innovation brought by uh, the, um, the then administrator of the Wage and Hour Division, David Weil. Um, in, uh, during the Trump administration, uh, the, um, 
the administrator reversed that, uh, finding that the payment of interest was slowing down recovery. And so it should be, uh, there should be no recovery of uh, liquidated damages uh, during, during the COVID crisis, but likely beyond. Um, and so for a period of time, uh, a particularly vulnerable period of time for low-wage workers, the um, Wage and Hour Division was collecting no interest by order of the administrator. Um, the Biden administration changed that policy almost immediately when it came into office. And so the Wage and Hour Division has gone back to its former practice. It does demonstrate, though, that, the, that this um, uh, this rule is vulnerable. What is a wage recovery fund? So a wage recovery fund is um, designed not, not to um, uh, require the recovery of interest in every case, though, so, though um, I think it's, though that's a good thing. It actually goes one step further and um, serves to um, get the employee their money earlier so that all of the damage that accrues as a result of the employee not being, having access to their money uh, is, uh, doesn't happen. Um, so here's how it works. The, um, imagine a worker coming to an agency with a claim of unpaid minimum wage. The agency um, would take that claim, take a, take a look at it, make sure it has merit, uh, and then say to the worker, here, is, uh, here are your wages, and here's the interest that's accrued up to this moment. And now the worker's whole. The agency then takes assignment of the claim, and it is now the agency's job to, um, to litigate that claim, to do what it needs to do to recover more fully. And now the agency has skin in the game, and it has a, a lot more leverage to actually achieve a more complete recovery. So the, the agency then recovers from the employer, recovers wages, recovers interest, maybe even recovers penalties, and all of that money goes into a wage recovery fund that is a dedicated fund within the agency to support the prepayment of claims. And so the, um, the, the fund now has recovered more than it paid out. So the fund should grow uh, because the agency is recovering, um, paying out some, recovering more, taking a new case, paying out some, recovering more. Uh, and so um, that is how a wage recovery fund works and is potentially self-sustaining. Your article outlines a few of these systems that states have already adopted. Could you describe a couple of those examples and, and tell us what those systems still lack when it comes to being self-sustaining? Yeah, yeah. So as I started looking state by state to, to, to see what it would take to build this, I was surprised to learn that um, the pieces Many of the pieces necessary to build this are already in state laws in various states. So, for example, to you know, in order to to um, to build a wage recovery fund, you need a few things. You need the ability to accept assignment. So, the agency needs to be able to 
uh, take assignment of a worker's claim. That is, so what I discovered is almost every state already can do that. And they generally are pretty straightforward. Um, and it's every state you can imagine from California to New Hampshire to Kansas. Um, so the first piece is there. The second piece that you would need to create a wage recovery fund is a fund, right? A designated place for the um, wage recovery to go um, so that it's um, dedicated to the proposition of, you know, of making workers whole. Um, so many states have already dedicated funds. Um, so for example, uh, Oregon, Kansas, uh, Hawaii, all have a, um, a sort of a budgetary place where if they collect penalties, if they collect attorney's fees, those penalties go into this fund that is in most states, theoretically, dedicated to supporting the agency as a whole. Um, you can imagine that it may or may not actually get used for that, um, it may end up being an offset to a budgetary allocation, but it exists. Um, and there are some states that do both. The, um, they uh, have the ability to take assignment. When they do so and recover, the certain parts of the recovery go into the fund that then supports the agency. Kansas is a great example, and I love it that it's Kansas, right? So in Kansas, the... Um, the agency is required to accept assignment of any case that is worth less than $5,000. The idea being those are workers who aren't gonna be able to find a lawyer. And so we, the agency in Kansas have decided we'll take those cases and we will you know, litigate them for you. Um, and in Kansas, the, it's combined with a fund where a certain extra penalties are are placed and go to support the agency as a whole. It's, it is admittedly smaller than what um, a wage recovery fund would look like, but it's there. Um, the third piece um, that you would need for a wage recovery fund is the ability to prepay. That is to pay wages before the employer has paid. So to act less like a broker and more like an insurance plan. Um, and so there are three states um, that have the ability to prepay. Um, Maine, Oregon, California. Um, Maine and Oregon have a, a budgetary yearly allocation to, a, um, to support paying wage claims where the employer is insolvent. Um, so it's not self-sustaining, it just it gets replenished every year. And once the agency has spent the money, there's, it's, uh, there is no more. Um, in California, the, um, the legislature created a, a garment worker fund that um, where uh, employees in the garment industry um, can be prepaid uh, wage claims, the assumption being those contractor employers are sometimes hard to find, let alone recover from. Could you describe um, how so a wage that, recovery fund that, that is self-sustaining um, and able to pay meritorious wage claims fees, in advance of the enforcement on, action would be administered? Uh, the fund would be administered by the, the agency itself. So what's kind of nice about this is that the agency, all of those employers, pretty deep 
expertise. So it exists. In so all the pieces are out there. It's just necessary that we, to administer yeah, with a wage recovery fund. The, the first is assessing those cases that are appropriate for this kind of recovery. And I'm um, suggesting in the article that not every case um, might be a, may be appropriate for wage recovery fund. So the, um, the agency um, has uh, experience sort of um, assessing the, the um, very strong from the sort of strong cases, right? And so the, the first thing that the agency would need to be able to do is pick which cases are appropriate for this kind of process. Um, and then the second thing that the agency would need to do um, is to um, take assignment of the case, which of course they already can do, and, um, and then uh, investigate and or um, litigate the case. So the, the agency has deep experience with investigation and generally has either in-house capacity to, um, to litigate or a partnership with the, uh, their attorney general's office, uh, which um, also has um, you know, uh, serious horsepower when it comes to um, this you know, litigation. Uh, so suddenly you've got the sort of leverage calculation um, really dramatically switch because because you've got I think a um, or should have a pretty good ability to administer the wage recovery fund. Now theoretically, it's um, the agency has the ability to administer a wage recovery fund. It's important to acknowledge that there are real limitations on the um, on the agency's functioning. And the, the first and maybe most important of those is the, uh, the question of funding and staffing. And I, um, I can say with some confidence that across the board, these enforcement agencies are uh, thinly staffed and thinly funded. Um, and so a wage recovery fund, while it does create a self-sustaining pool of money to prepay claims, um, uh, doesn't necessarily create more funding for more uh, positions within the agency. So that problem of underfunding um, is continues to exist. And so um, a, a wage recovery fund neither helps nor I think harms um, that existing problem. And in regards to that problem, your, your article discusses a couple of potential solutions, including uh, a potential social insurance supplement. Could you describe that and, and some of the other uh, potential solutions? Yes. So, um, so one potential way to approach that challenge is to add to the wage recovery fund a, a um, social insurance component. And what I mean by that is sort of like the garment worker fund. The, the idea would be employers would pay in a small amount to supplement the wage recovery fund to allow that fund to, um, to operate more broadly, to allow that fund to take on larger, perhaps um, riskier cases, and to allow that fund to start to become a source of more generalized funding for the agency to begin to address some of those questions of, um, of staffing. And the last suggestion that your article makes that I think is really great is that we could actually take this wage recovery fund and make it community-based and, and make it administered by 
a community organization as opposed to an agency. So I'm wondering if you could describe how that would work and what benefits that might have. Yeah, so I agree. I find this possibility really exciting. Um, and so the, the, um, the idea is that, you know, we've, we've developed a pretty sophisticated in a lot of states um, uh, system for partnering between community-based organizations and state-based enforcement. Um, and the, and the, the reason for doing that is that um, half of the challenge with, with wage enforcement is, is reaching the most vulnerable workers. And the, um, the most vulnerable workers are unlikely to come to, um, you know, to a state agency and make a claim. It's just not a safe place. And so um, community organizations can operate in a way uh, to, to um, increase uh, access to real enforcement, whether that's um, by partnering with an agency or by enforcing through other mechanisms. And so what if the um, wage recovery fund, uh, almost exactly as conceived in the agency, were held by a community-based nonprofit? And that nonprofit would be in the same position that I've described in terms of um, administering the fund. And the fund then um, uh, grows and, and um, can be used in the same ways that, uh, that I described with respect to supporting the agency, but, but we're growing this um, uh, community organization. And the community organization can do a couple of important things that the state agency cannot. One is that it can, its decisions about which cases to prioritize can reflect the, um, the priorities of the community that that organization serves. Um, and the second thing that a community organization can do is to complement this enforcement with organizing. And so the, the potentially creates a, um, a source of support and longevity for that organizing. And that organizing is now funded in part at least by uh, wrongdoing employers, which has a certain kind of poetic justice to it. What are some of the challenges that would be faced by a community-based wage recovery fund? There are, so there are a couple. Um, one, which um, took me back to law school myself, was uh, champerty. Uh, champerty refers to the English, English common law uh, disfavoring uh, the purchasing of um, legal claims. And theoretically, in the United States, that um, preference is inapplicable, right? We, we don't theoretically disfavor the purchasing of legal claims. However, there, um, state by state, there are some, um, some uh, exceptions to that, New York being a big one um, that um, prohibits it. Um, so, there, so setting up a community-based wage recovery fund would require some research on the champerty laws in that state. Um, and I think there are ways to, um, even where you have uh, some of those prohibitions, to build it um, in a way that is compliant with those champerty laws. And I discussed that in the paper. Um, and the other is, is a very practical uh, question. And that is the, um, 
creating a wage recovery fund will require some um, uh, initial investment and also some stability in the organization. So um, it will be important to, um, to uh, make sure that the, the organization itself is on a solid footing before taking this on. And I guess the last thing is that the organization needs to have a solid partnership with, um, with a, an outside um, law firm. So a great example is the Chinese Progressive Association and um, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, which is a nonprofit law firm that they partner with uh, regularly. So I sort of give that example in the paper. In conclusion, could you describe for us the ways in which the wage recovery fund that your article proposes is preferable to the current system? Yeah, I mean, I think this takes us right back to the top, right? The current system, it's, it is difficult to imagine how to um, solve the problem of, uh, of agencies and workers foregoing interest. Um, without thinking about how you would get how you would devise a system where where workers are paid earlier um, and so this I think creates a roadmap for um, you know one way that that workers could um, get paid up front so it starts to look a lot more like a safety net than um, just like an agency brokering a settlement conversation between employer and employee. And in that way, it is switching the leverage. And that, I think, is the first, a first step toward thinking about switching, shifting the power in the workplace more broadly. So this is intended to start the conversation about um, ways to um, adjust our thinking about the um, Minimum, minimum wage, minimum standards enforcement system so that um, it doesn't simply replicate the power imbalance that exists in the workplace so that our uh, agency or community-based systems are actually engaged in the project of, um, of shifting the allocation of power in the workplace. And this idea does that by borrowing the power that an agency might have or borrowing the power that a, a, um, community organizing presents and applying that to the, to the process of um, recovering wages. Uh, so I really want to invite anyone who is excited by this idea or who hates this idea or who just wants to talk more about this idea to get in touch with me. I welcome it. I would be excited to talk more. I do have some follow on research that I'm planning that has to do with figuring out exactly how much money is being left on the table. And so that we can figure out if to what extent this fund will be self-sustaining or maybe able to fund other things. So I, um, I would love to hear anyone's thoughts or ideas or comments about the article. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk more about it. Yeah, it was a real, a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Professor Ford, for, for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the California Law Review podcast. If you would like to read Professor Ford's article, you can find it in volume 110, issue 5, 
of the California Law Review at californialawreview.org. For updates on new episodes and articles, please follow us on Twitter. You can find a list of the editors who worked on this volume of the podcast in the show notes. We'll see you in the next episode.